0: Well, brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Really, I worked this frog out of my throat here. I took a, this is the preacher's nightmares. You take a sip of water when you get up to talk, and then you choke on it. So you're <clears throat> sorry. Okay, before we dig into this reading today, I want to mention something. Um, I want to deal with something that's been on my heart. Uh, I attended a picnic last night for folks in my neighborhood. And uh, in the area that we live in, we try to go to these things because the greatest security system on earth is knowing your neighbors uh, by a first name basis, right? We all know that. so it's, it's good to know your neighbors. And we're also in like a weirdly heated political situation in, in Caledonia uh, area. There's like, I'm sure that you're familiar with this, uh, there's like a school board. Fight and it's gotten pretty nasty for a lot of small town families that have lived there for generations. I've been in West Michigan for, I'm, I'm a seventh generation person, so it's very weird to me. But I, at the picnic, somebody was mentioning that they'd gotten some nasty comments on social media and Facebook and this sort of thing. And they were frustrated by their compulsion to read the comments, specifically on the local news website. Friends, there is no gold in those hills. There is nothing beneficial that will come to you from reading the comment section on your local news website. <clears throat> but there were folks saying, you know, they were complaining, saying, I know that I shouldn't read the comments, but I keep compulsively reading the comments. Um, I mean, some of you, you know, God help us, some of you try to respond to these people in the comments. Don't, uh, don't do that. But two things, objectively, let's remember that leaving a nasty Anonymous comment on the internet is a a meaningless gesture. It carries, it takes no thought or effort at all. Compare this with writing a letter to the editor or making a phone call or something that takes a little bit of investment. Um, I've gotten plenty of nasty, my share of nasty comments from people on the internet. But every time I've received in my office a phone call or a letter uh, or somebody who actually sat down to write something meaningful. Any time that the communication requires actual effort, it's always been positive, supportive, um, overwhelmingly gracious, even from people who might disagree with me. Uh, The positive effects of the ministries that we do in the United Church of Christ inspire other Christians all over the country. Um, And second, but this is the most important part, and if you leave with nothing, take this with you. I want you to make a list of ten people you can make a list, you can write it out or you can make the list in your head, I have it in my head. Um, A list of ten people that you genuinely respect and you respect their opinions. If if any of these individuals came up to you and said, hey, you need to really rethink your position on this issue, you would listen to them. Uh, Probably should include your spouse in the list if you're married. Uh, Include a uh, you know, a mentor, an old friend, but 10 people, please put Jesus at the top uh, of the list, name, name above names, all that stuff. And once you have your list, whenever you read someone saying something nasty uh, on the internet, or, b- or being mean to you, or whatever, just check your list. It's easy as that. Is their name on the list? No? Well, politely ignore them. <laughs> Jesus said that people would always be saying mean things about people who followed him tried to walk in his footsteps. So it shouldn't surprise us that this is out there, especially as we get into the silly season, October and November. But rather, we politely and innocently surrender to the understanding that some people are broken. And if they're not on our list, we can pray for them. Today we're going to practice that surrender, though. Surrender, and so let us surrender our hearts to prayer. Please pray with me. Almighty God, You alone are our guide and our destination. Open us to your spirit and to the spirit of your word, Lord. Amen. Well, hell is, uh, hell, Gehenna, hell is back in the news. Uh, Hell's back in the news again, and it's bad news for hell. Um, We do this thing in the church. Every couple hundred years, usually, uh, in the church, we, we have a sort of theological spring cleaning. Uh, And it's happening now again. We're in the middle of another Reformation. Uh, And invariably, every couple hundred years, hell gets thrown out. It gets tossed out in the herbie Kirby with a dozen other old heresies that somehow crop back up again. And unfortunately, for reasons that I'm about to explain, unfortunately, um, somebody wanders along and picks it up out of the trash and says, hey, this is a perfectly serviceable theology. You know, and they toss it in the trunk of their Camry and it keeps getting recycled again, even though we keep trying to get rid of it. The Baptists, maybe the Baptists, are the ones responsible for this. They keep recycling hell. And we keep tossing it out. And every time we do, it starts a new denomination. There's 57,000 Christian denominations on the planet already. That's an actual... Number that's the actual figure, as of the latest count. Two hundred years ago, when we chucked out hell, it started Unitarianism. A hundred years ago, it started perennialism. But we're back at it. We've tossed, we've thrown out hell, this concept of eternal torment in the afterlife. Uh, A few years ago, Rob Bell uh, rehashed these old arguments against the existence of hell in his now-famous book called *Love Wins*. I hope you've all had a chance to read it. That led to a great gnashing of teeth and about a billion bumper stickers. The bumper sticker wars, I called it. And then a documentary came out a few years ago called Hellbound uh, that showcased all of the different denominations, various doctrines around the existence of hell. Um, uh, and then recently I saw a, a, a play, a, a performance in a theater in Kalamazoo that showcased Lucas Nat's uh, recent award-winning play simply called The Christians. It's a, it's a play that's set in, set in a church. It's about a church pastor who, who has a crisis of consciousness um, it, about the existence of hell, and then it displays the fallout from this, the Sunday morning. This is a very conservative church, and they, they have a, a rough time. Um, <clears throat> I've always held out an almost Lutheran disinterest in the theology of hell. It's too much trouble to think about it. And if I trust God anyway, then I'm going to leave it up to God to figure it out. Jesus doesn't seem to have much to say about it. He seems to be a lot more concerned with who we serve and how we serve in this life. But I'm always reminded of this famous quote by by Luther, by Martin Luther. He was once asked by a student, What was God doing before the creation? And Luther said, Cutting switches for the curious. Hell's existence, if it does exist, today it's a product of Western philosophy. Right? This idea that we have souls, and that the soul of a person either goes to heaven or hell when we die. Um, the concept of a soul didn't really exist in Christianity until the 17th century. It would have been a thoroughly alien idea to, to Jesus. The, the Bible, the, the, the Old Testament and the New, says doesn't talk about There being this kind of spiritual soul that goes, flits off through space or something. It says that our bodies, when we die, our bodies are buried in the ground. And then at the end, heaven comes down here. We're physically resurrected. There's talk about a judgment. There's talk about a winnowing. But the Bible has a lot of different conflicting things to say about what actually happens at that time. Now in order to properly consider this question, we've got to flip the question on its head and consider first the question of our salvation. Salvation. In theology, we've got a $10 word for salvation. We call it soteriology, but that's just Greek for the study of salvation. Ever since humankind has evolved the awareness of our own mortality, we've used this stuff as like a poker chip to try to get people to do what we want. Government... Comes along, government has said since the beginning, obey my orders or I'll kill you. That's what they said to Jesus Christ. Obey me or I'll kill you. That's the government's position. Now, religion tries to go over the top of the government's head and says, oh, and when he's done killing you, we're going to kill you again. But, like, even worse, and with pitchforks and fire. Okay? This stuff is about control. And enforcing, it's about enforcing a particular world view. And if you scratch the surface, it it just always comes down to resource acquisition. This stuff. Accumulating wealth, or access to wealth. That is mammon worship. That's what Jesus is talking about today. Serving two masters. And hell is a perfect manifestation of that idea. Depriving somebody of their resources. Give me your stuff, they seem to say, so I can control you, and so that I won't have to worry about personally not having enough stuff. And if you don't do this, I'm going to take away your life, or I may put you in hell. This way of thinking, this attitude, this posture toward God's creation is so contrary to the way of Jesus Christ. We ought to be able to dismiss it right out of hand. Jesus says again and again and again, we talk about it here on Sunday, don't worry about your body. Don't worry about what you're gonna eat or what you'll wear. Don't worry, God provides. I came to give you life and life abundantly. God created the world and called it good. The world is good and all that's in it, there is enough to go around. So because of this, you can't serve God and serve wealth. You can't worship God and worship wealth because you'll come to hate one and love the other. Or love one and hate the other. You know, and I know that I've said this before, I sound like a broken record, but right now, today, on this planet, on this planet, the world's agricultural output, all of the farming and and ranching and all of this together produces 3,000 calories of food every day per person. 3,000 calories per person per day. if you took away, now we grow a lot of crops to feed to other crops, right? If you live near me, you just see feed corn for miles. You can't eat that stuff. I mean, you can try. We use that. We feed that to cows, and then we eat the cows. If we stop growing food to feed to other animals and just grew food, the, the, the global output is closer to 8,000 calories per person per day on this planet. The, we're currently producing... Right now, one and a half times as much food as we need to feed everybody on Earth. We have enough. We have enough. We have enough of everything. Right now, in Grand Rapids, despite their claims that there's this housing crisis, there is a housing crisis, but but we have 10 empty residential units, 10 empty residential units for every single homeless man, woman, and child in this city. They're sitting there empty. 10 for each individual homeless person. It's crazy. Now the question of whether or not God's provision, God's creation, God's design and plan for the the world is sufficient to meet our needs has never been in doubt. Never been in doubt. God's abundance is immeasurable. God obviously deeply loves us to have set the world up this way. It's never been a question of production. It's a question of distribution. That's it. The only reason, the only reason that any human being on this planet starves to death is because of human sin. That's it. And it's because some human beings love this more than they love people. And people, people are the living icon of God. When you look at another human being, you are seeing the closest possible thing to an image of God that is anywhere on this planet. And so it tells us that God is diverse, that God is different and somehow the same, but every person is a living icon of God. An icon, think about that, an icon in the tradition, an image that is supposed to attract our worship and our love and our adoration. And then think about this. If this is an icon of something, is this an object that we, we could attract, that could attract our worship? What would it be an icon of? What are the inscriptions that we put on it? What is this strange pyramid with a floating eyeball above it and there's an eagle with a bunch of weapons and stuff? I mean, I think about that, right? The human being is an icon of the creator What is money an icon of? Well, Jesus tells us today. Mammon. God's abundance is everywhere, and human beings make it into a zero-sum game. They imagine it's a pie, and there isn't enough to go around. And the question of salvation, God's grace and mercy, what becomes of us when we die, it's no different. There's no reason to expect it to be any different. There's absolutely no different, because It is only the the desires of human beings that dictate that some want to reserve salvation for a few. And notice that when they want to reserve salvation for a few, it's always people that kind of look like them and kind of act like them too. As though God is a ticket vendor at a county fair. As though salvation is like a cosmic vending machine. So what God says in the Bible, this is what God says. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile God's self to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Does the Bible say that God reconciles a few things, a few people, a particular church, a particular faith? No. It doesn't say that The Bible is very explicit about this. All things, it says, all things, over and over again, all things, reconciled to God through Christ. God's not petty with God's grace. God is jealous of our worship. God wants us to worship God alone because God knows what happens when we don't, when we choose to worship other things like money or fame. But God is not petty with grace. Because it cost God everything. God's grace cost God everything. God took on flesh. Took on our own life, our lot. Took on our pain. God lost everything. God had to lose everything in that terrible moment. In Gehenna. At the cross. God descended into death itself. God took death into God's own body. In order to smash it utterly. Death itself. Into death. And to do so in the Easter moment to make death into nothing for all flesh. For the Bible says all things are reconciled to God. I'm starting to wander into Easter, and I'm heading the wrong direction in the calendar year. And you did going towards Christmas. But don't think so little of God's sacrifice on the cross that he came to save a few but surrender to the understanding that God's work of atonement, just like God's abundance out there in the world, is not for the few, not even for the many, but for the entire universe, the entire creation, for all, for all. And when that becomes your watchword and your path, worshiping this seems like a terrible investment of your time and energy you are God's beloved, and God is pleased to dwell with you. Amen.